If you have your Bible with you, would you take it out, please, and turn to, well, there are a couple places you can turn. Uh, our lesson is primarily going to be out of 2 Peter chapter 3. Almost the whole lesson is going to be taken from that chapter. But we're actually going to start in the first psalm, Psalm 1. So if you want to mark your spot, maybe in 2 Peter chapter 3, we'll get there in just a second. But we're actually going to start in Psalm 1, the first psalm. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we were studying um, out of Psalm 1. Well, I was studying out of Psalm 1 in preparation for our Bible class last week. Um, and there was a, uh, a phrase in here that, that reminded me of something in the New Testament. And so let's begin in Psalm 1, and then we'll turn over to 2 Peter chapter 3 and see if we can make that connection. Uh, thank you for being here tonight. Uh, we have a number of our members who are out with sickness, out with vacation, but we have some who uh, are visiting with us, and we appreciate your presence very much. Thank you for coming and being with us. In Psalm 1, um, we see uh, a progression that is found in the first verse, and uh, in the junior high class, we studied this progression, and it's pretty easy for us to pick, on, pick up on and see if, if we just read it together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Right away we see that, that uh, progression. Someone is walking with someone, and then you can imagine that they stop and they stand and they're talking with that one, and then finally they've gotten so close and the conversation so deep that they go ahead and sit down with that person. We see the progression, right, as they're getting closer and closer to these ungodly people. This is not what the man of God does. He walks in the counsel of the Lord. He delights in the law of the Lord. But there's also a description of the, of the kind of ungodliness that's being described here. It begins with the ungodly, who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. I would suggest that this is the one who is passively opposed to God. They don't have a relationship with God. They're ungodly, but they aren't necessarily what we would view as a bad person. They're not doing a lot of bad, sinful things. Uh, one who isn't even giving advice necessarily that's inherently sinful. The problem is that their advice comes from a different perspective, a physical, carnal perspective without God instead of a spiritual one. So don't, don't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. But then it progresses, don't stand in the path of sinners. So here's someone who is uh, actively involved in an ungodly lifestyle. They're actively opposed to God. And maybe they don't speak ill of Christianity, but they act ill of Christianity. Maybe it's a friend who's always getting us in trouble or a boss that just isn't a very good person and is always asking us to do things that are kind of borderline wrong or violate our conscience. They aren't actively speaking against God or Christians but they're acting in such a way that it's clear they're opposed to it. But then what's the worst kind of sinner found in Psalm 1 and verse 1? Nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Maybe your translation says sits in the seat of scoffers. Um, what's a scoffer? A scoffer is someone who is actively hostile toward righteousness. They are active and vocal in their opposition of godly things. And they do and speak against those who are trying to be godly. They pour forth foolishness and arrogance. These are the ones who deny God, deny godliness, 
deny righteousness and ultimately deny God's judgment. And that's really where I want to get with this idea. We see Psalm 1 here, and, and coincidentally, as we're studying and reading through the Psalms, this is just a really quick kind of plug. Uh, there's a great um, podcast that I've been listening to with Tommy Peeler. Tommy came and preached for us five, six, seven years ago. He is fantastic in the Psalms, and he has a podcast called Carefully Examining the Text that is all about the Psalms, and he's up to Psalm 56. And so uh, for you adults especially, but I'm not going to rule any kids out, if you want a deeper dive in some of the psalms that we've been studying, uh, this is a great thing to consider. But I want us to turn now to 2 Peter chapter 3. As we think about this idea of scoffers being the ones who are most adamantly opposed to righteousness and by extension opposed to Christianity, let's consider 2 Peter chapter 3 beginning in verse 3. And again, if you want to mark your Bible here, we're going to be coming back to this text over and over throughout the lesson. 2 Peter 3 and verse 3. Peter says, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So they're looking at us Christians and saying, scoffing and saying, how silly. You're looking for God. You're looking for Jesus to come. Well, where's the promise? He said he was going to come. Where is he? Does God have the ability to judge? Is God even out there, they say? And they're denying the judgment, which conveniently leaves them with very little incentive to change anything in their lifestyle. This chapter really is about judgment and God's judgment and the end of this age and the world. And if we see the judgment correctly, as Peter lays it out for us here in this chapter, it should cause us fear that leads to either procrastination or change on our part. We remember in Acts chapter 24, if you want to turn back to the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 24, um, Paul is under arrest and there is uh, this governor named Felix. And Felix, he sends for Paul and he wants to hear him concerning the faith in Christ. And so in Acts chapter 24 and verse 25, this is how Paul approaches Felix, who has some background knowledge of Judaism and the things of God. And so he reasoned about righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come. And as he reasoned about those things, Felix was afraid. My translation, New King James says, maybe your translation says, he was alarmed. I think it's maybe Old King James says, he trembled. He shook in his boots when he heard Paul reasoning about this idea that there's going to be a judgment. And God is going to call to account all the things that we have done. All the things that Felix had done. And Felix was unrighteous. He was known to take bribes. In fact, the very next verse, he's waiting on a bribe from friends of Paul so that he'll release him. He's someone without self-control. He is known in history as someone who just indulged in every fantasy that was possibly available to him. But when you see those things in the context of a coming judgment, it made him afraid. And he answered Paul, go away for now. When I have a convenient time, I will call 
for you. It is much easier to ignore or deny or scoff at an idea of judgment than to truly consider it and consider the ramifications for our own lives. Going back to 2 Peter chapter 3, how does Peter respond to these who say, hey, everything's just been humming along the way it always has? Well, notice in verses 5, 6, and 7. For this they willfully forget. They could know, but they've chosen to forget that by the word of God the heavens were of old, the earth standing out of the water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. He says, they forget that God's already judged the whole world once before in the flood. And the only thing that is keeping God from judging this whole world again is that he's promised not to judge it again with water. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth which are now preserved by the same word are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition or destruction of ungodly men. Flood is what's proof of fire. The two ways that God has and will judge the whole earth. Judgment is coming, brothers and sisters. Are we ready for it when it does? What is God's desire in regard to this judgment? We'll keep reading in verse 8. But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. Um... God is not limited by time like we are. He created time. And it's difficult because we are constrained to time. It's difficult for us to consider this concept that God does not consider or look at time the same way we do. Um, Psalm 90 and verse 4, this came from our reading. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it's past, like a, like a watch in the night. And so that, that concept is pretty... Uh, Pretty tough for us to wrap our minds around, but if we stop and consider it, I think it says something about God and His long-suffering that we're about to consider in just a second. A thousand years is as one day. It can pass that quickly. And sometimes we look at life and we say, where did the time go? Maybe we can get just a little bit of taste of that. But we also know the experience, especially when we're going through times of, of difficulty, times of suffering, where it seems like time just drags and drags and drags. One day seems like a thousand years. In the context of the Lord's long-suffering, maybe that's the better image in our mind. God does not change. And the harm and hurt that it causes Him when His creation turns against Him does not change because of time. And so if God is suffering to this degree as, as people scoff and scorn His love and His mercy and His righteousness and truth, if it's causing Him that much pain, why does He wait? Well, verse 9, The Lord is not slack concerning His promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God wants all to be saved, even as they mock him. We think back to 1 Peter chapter 3. Again, Peter uses the example of the flood. And in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 20, he says, who formerly were disobedient when once 
the divine long-suffering waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls, were saved through water. And it goes on to talk about God saves us through water as well. But the point in verse 20 is that God was long-suffering. If my understanding of the text in Genesis is correct, God waited then for a hundred years. For a hundred years He waited for others to come and yet it was only eight who were saved on the ark. And God waits now. His judgment will come, but any delay in that judgment is for our benefit in the hope that others might come to repentance. And while there are some like these scoffers in 2 Peter 3 who do not see His judgment ever coming, they willfully are ignorant in that regard, there are others who see God's coming coming everywhere. (laughs) Everything seems to be a sign of God's coming again. Uh, we went uh, a couple of weeks ago down to Puerto Rico, as, as I told you, um, and we have a, a good friend there uh, I went to college with who's preaching in Spanish uh, for a couple of different congregations in Puerto Rico. And they moved down there, and when they did, there was a, a hurricane that came in in 2017, I believe it was, almost wiped the, the, the island out. I mean, they're still recovering from some of the things that took place with this hurricane. And so the brethren there were kind of like, hey, man, is this like a sign of the end times? Like, what's going on? And, and he's like, no, you know what? Is it just Puerto Rico? Puerto Rico's the only place where the Lord's coming again? Well, after that, there were earthquakes. They had 50-something earthquakes over the course of a couple of years, and it made it harder for him to uh, argue against them. Then after that, COVID hit with all of the lockdowns and shutdowns and so forth. Well, but... Are we able to really truly see with that kind of precision? Oh, we know the Lord's about to come. What does he say in verse 10? The day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. We as human beings have a tendency to worry far more about when the Lord is coming again rather than being ready for him when he does. I'm going to read you a list of uh, dates. What do all of these years have in common? 1936, 1940, 1948, 1957, 1975, 1980, 1982, 1990, 1996, and every single year for 22 years in the 2000s. What do they all have in common? A supposedly Christian group predicted the second coming of Christ in those years. The day of the Lord. And combined, those predictions represent the failed beliefs of millions of people. People are fascinated with this idea of the last days and Armageddon and the rapture. And they like to deal with the idea of the end of times. And yet most of the dealing is in fantasy rather than reality. What I want to do in the rest of the lesson tonight is bring us back firmly to the realm of reality. As we consider God's judgment. Because there will be one final day of the Lord when Jesus comes to judge all men and women. There have been many days of the Lord throughout history, but there is one final one coming. And in verse 11, Peter says this, Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, all this world that we see is going to be burned up, destroyed, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness. What manner of persons ought you to be? That is the question, practically, isn't it? God does His part. He will judge, and He has been long-suffering so that we have the opportunity to repent. So what is it that I am supposed to be doing? 
Well, notice three things uh, at the very end of this chapter and at the end of this epistle from Peter to these brethren. Look first in verses 12 and 13. What manner of persons ought you to be? In holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We ought to be forward-thinking and upward-looking without fear. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and we should never lose our reverence and respect for God. But that concept of looking for and hastening the coming day of God, the judgment, without fear, is startling. That is someone who has no fear of judgment who says, I am ready for the Lord to come again. But instead of fear, it is an expectation of the joys that follow the judgment and how great those joys must be. According to God's promises, we, we look forward to heaven and we set our mind and heart and intentions there. How often, how often in the day-to-day minutiae of life do you remind yourself that you are looking for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells? Living this life is with the intention of being there. And we see this, we see this idea of looking forward and upward uh, throughout the uh, epistles of First and Second Peter. Notice in Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. By which, 2 Peter 1, 4, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. We're looking forward to those promises. That through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. It is intended to be an escape. The judgment provides a way of escape for us. Escape from judgment, yes, but escape from the nastiness and confusion and injustice of this world. Have you ever thought about how the flood was an escape for Noah and his family? An escape from all of that nastiness. An escape from all of that unrighteousness where the thoughts and intents of the hearts of the people were only evil continually. Don't you want to get away from that? Aren't you tired of that? God's judgment provides an escape. And it's not just that we look forward to that, at that escape. There should be some smaller escapes for us as we enter into the, the kingdom of God. An escape from, from this world into something better. The church, this church, and any like it, are supposed to be escapes from the world. Um, camp is an escape for me because you get away from all that nastiness. And faithfulness among my brethren is supposed to be an escape, that these are the people that I can rely on. Not that they're perfect, but these are the ones who have the same goals and motives as I do. We've all heard the phrase, uh, out of the frying pan and into the fire. Sometimes we escape, but not to something better. But may it never be so for us as Christians. We escape the world to become part of the kingdom of God. And we can look forward to the promised land where we will escape the world for good. Do we look at it that way? Or like the children of Israel, do we escape Egypt only to look back and say, I wish that we'd never left. I wish we could go back. If we look at the world that way, then it doesn't make any sense, first of all. But we need to be careful 
But we are not with the world when judgment comes. The world is going to try and tell us that we aren't escaping anything that's any good. In 2 Peter chapter 2, in verse 18, notice these smooth and deceptive words. Peter says, For they speak great swelling words of emptiness. They allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. They've escaped and somebody's dragging them back into slavery. While they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. By him, uh, For by whom a person is overcome, by him also he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness, and having known it, to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. But it has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow, having washed, to her wallowing in the mire. Why is it worse? I mean, they're going to end up in the same place in judgment, right? So why is it worse to have known the Lord and turned from Him than never to have known Him? I'll take an answer. Yes, sir. Because you know God and you know He's capable of doing it. You expect His word to be done. Come on. Uh, Come to me. Yeah, I mean, if you already know God, you know His word, and you've had respect for it, and you've seen the way that it's supposed to lead, and you don't live it, can you imagine then in judgment looking and saying, I had it. I was there. I could be with God in all of these precious promises. And yet I chose to go in a different direction. Now, Peter says the words of these people, those words sound great. They sound progressive and enlightened and refined. But ultimately they are empty promises. There are those in this world, most notably the devil himself, who want us to look down at the mud, to be distracted by the minutiae. When the moment of truth comes, perhaps it is too late for us because we have not been forward-thinking and upward-looking. and We should fear in the day of judgment if that comes. Uh, my parents got to go to the ark last week. Uh, who in here has been to the, not the real ark, but the ark up in Kentucky, right? Um, this is them. This is the picture that they took after they went through all of the ark and all of those sorts of things. Because on the way to the ark, in fact, just before the exit to go to the ark, this is what the sky looked like. I mean, that would be a little freaky, wouldn't it? I mean, you're going to the ark. And they said they got there, and just as they were entering the boat, torrential rain started. And there was like flooding all around the area. They're like, this is just this is a little strange. They had to stay on the ark for three hours so as not to get out into this giant thunderstorm. I mean there a safer place to be uh, than on the ark when the floods come? But all I could think when they sent me this photograph was, how many people in the days of Noah saw clouds like this and thought, uh-oh. But the door had been shut. Ladies and gentlemen, we don't need to wait until it starts raining to try and enter the ark. The, the door might be shut when we get there. 
God has already been so long-suffering. Because He's not willing that anyone, He's not willing that you should perish. But He wants you to come to repentance. And so look forward beyond this moment. Look forward beyond right now and what's right in front of you. Look forward beyond today and tomorrow. Look to eternity and say, where is it that I want to be? Because a judgment of fire is coming. And I can look to it without fear. I'm right with God. The second thing, if we go back to 2 Peter chapter 3, what manner of persons ought you to be? Well, we need to be diligent people. Diligent to make our calling and election sure. Go to verse 14. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, we're forward looking, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. Salvation is what we're looking for. And so we need to be diligent to be sure about that salvation. Go back again to 2 Peter chapter 1, this time to verse 10. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You will never stumble. You're never going to sin again? No. But you're never going to be outside of God. You're, you're confident in your salvation because you are intentionally and habitually walking in the light. Striving to live as God would have you to live. And if there's something in your life that's pointed out that's not right, you, you fix it. If there's sin that, that comes into your life that you commit, you pray for forgiveness. Being diligent in those things, all the more diligent, we can be sure in our call and in our election. What is call and election? Well, that's our salvation, making sure we're right with God. And it's interesting the terms that are used by Peter. Giving all diligence, he says in verse 5, to add these things in your life. Verse 10, be even more diligent. What's more than all? Giving all diligence will give even more than all diligence. That's what he says. He's emphasizing that we need to be sure. Don't miss anything. And that requires constant self-examination and constantly holding up the mirror of God's Word to our life. Be diligent. Um, is this where we place our diligence in God's Word? Maybe it's a matter of you're not sure what you need to do to be saved. Well, figure it out and, and go to God's Word to do that. And if we can help you in some way, there's nothing that would make us happier than to sit down together to make our calling and election sure. Give it the time and attention it deserves because our souls are on the line. And maybe you do know, but are you continuing in that diligence, continuing to check yourself against the standard of God's Word? Um, I've, I've got an uncle, and if you ask him what he does for a living, he says, well, for 35 years I've changed tires for a living. And that's true. Uh, his son gets upset whenever he says that, my cousin. He says, what he doesn't tell you is he's owned his own tire business for 35 years. But... Just because you're the owner doesn't mean that you're not out there uh, with the tires yourself. And, and my uncle's amazing. I, I love watching him work. Um, even um, as he's gotten a little bit older, he, he's still amazing. He's in great shape, gets that tire up there, and seeing him put the lug nuts on a, on a, on a, on a wheel is just incredible. It, it's something like this. 
sound effects. You ready? And it's done. But it's always like that. He hits every single lug nut twice. And so one time I, I just asked him, I said, you know, you've been doing it all this time. Why do you still, after all of these years, hit every lug nut twice? And he looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, I don't miss lug nuts. In 35 years, there's not been a single car that's driven off this lot where I put the tires back on that they had a loose lug nut. You know what that is? Giving all diligence to be sure. And isn't that what we should be doing? Not because we're uncertain, not because we're filled with anxiety about our salvation, but because that's how important this is. And as we continue to grow, we can see more and more clearly what it is God would have us to be. How sure can we really be about all of this? Well, look in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. This is what Peter says. For we did not follow cunningly devised fables when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. So we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. New King James says, the better word is of any private origin. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter says, God told us these things and we pass them on to you. Verse 1 of chapter 2. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. We can be sure it isn't a blind faith because it's from eyewitnesses inspired by the Holy sure Spirit. It is sure and we can be sure too. And so go back to the standard. Test all things. Hold fast to what is good. And that includes the things that I say, the things that Harold says, and the things that anyone says. And ultimately, how do you know that you're right with God Well, by, by being established and steadfast in the truth? Go back one more time to uh, 2 Peter chapter 3. Let's keep reading in verse 15. Long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking uh, in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, Peter admits, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. You, therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away 
with the error of the wicked. Be established and steadfast in what the truth is. Paul's writings were scripture. It was the truth of the gospel. And what Peter says is you can understand and you need to know what it was that Paul said. He says he writes some things hard to understand. And what's the implication of hard to understand? Not impossible. They can be understood. And Peter says you need to understand them. We understand them, and you need to understand them too. If we go back earlier in the book again, this time to 2 Peter chapter 1. Notice beginning in verse 1 down through verse 3. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us, with us whom? With the apostles, by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ our Lord, as His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue. Peter says we, the apostles, have been given all things that pertain to life and godliness. And maybe we say, that's great, Peter, but I'm not an apostle. What am I supposed to do? Well, drop down to verse 12. Peter says, for this reason... For my note takers, verse 12. For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right, as long as I am in this tent, as long as I'm alive, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my deceit, after I die. I want you to still be able to go back and see and know and study and follow the truth. Even if we look back in 2 Peter chapter 3 in the beginning of that chapter, as he draws these thoughts to a conclusion in this epistle, what does he say just before all of the verses that we've just read? In 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder. You may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Know what the Word of God says, Peter says. Read it, study it, love it, hunger for more, and be solid in it. And if, if you will do that, you will always be growing. Notice the last verse in 2 Peter chapter 3. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Congratulations, we've been through 2 Peter chapter 3. You need to be the kind of person that is described in the very beginning of this letter. Someone who adds to their faith virtue, to virtue, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Four, if those things are yours and abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you are the type of person who is forward-thinking and upward-looking without fear, the kind of person who is diligent to make your calling and election sure, if you're the kind of person who is established 
and steadfast in the truth, then you are the kind of person who will grow and continue to have confidence to where you can say, come Lord Jesus, I'm ready for his judgment. So what manner of person are you? How do you look at judgment? Judgment by water is past as an example and proof that God can and God will judge. Judgment by fire, well, that's still coming. And we don't know when. We know it'll be as a thief in the night. Could be now, could be a thousand years from now. But the most important question is, are you ready? If you're not ready, even this evening, there is nothing, we say that, there is nothing that we would love more. Think about it. What else would I love more right now, tonight, than for someone to come and make their life right with Jesus? Nothing. Nothing I would love more, nothing Christ and the angels in heaven would love more than for you to come and be right with him. Because he is not willing that you should perish, but instead desires that you come to repentance. Won't you come in repentance and put Christ on in baptism? that you might rise to walk in newness of life. And we call you to do that now, while together we stand, while we sing.